This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Jason, you might recall last week there was a story in the Bloomberg. It noted how novel pathogens that sicken humans have been discovered at an average rate of more than three per year over the past four decades, with about 75% coming from animals. So this has certainly been an important area of study. We have a good voice on this uh, right now. Dr. Richard Webby is infectious diseases expert at St. Jude Children's Hospital. He is director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Studies on the Ecology of Influenza in Animals and birds, and he joins us uh, on the phone in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Webby, so nice to have you here with us. Um, first of all, let's just hit, though, on those, those virus headlines today. Um, places that were making progress are slipping back again, a la California, Florida. The numbers are off the charts. Um, where are we in this fight against the pandemic here in the United States? Yeah, well, thanks, Carolyn. You know, I think that the numbers speak for themselves a little bit, unfortunately. You know, we're, you know, looked for a while, we were making some traction. I think as things have opened up and people have let their guard down a little bit, we're starting to see the consequences of that. And, it, you know, sure looks like we're on a, a sort of an upward swing again, unfortunately. So what do we need to do here, Dr. Webbing? Well, well, I think it's, you know, it's clear what we were doing before was working and, you know, I think we've also seen that from other countries that have been successful that, you know, as difficult as they are, the social distancing and, and the mask wearing, you know, they, they do work. And right now it's kind of the only real tool we have against this virus until, you know, until a vaccine comes along. So let's talk about that if we can, because I, I have to say, sitting here in the New York area, and I think I speak for Carol as well, mm-hmm. this is candidly super frustrating for us because we sort of did all those things and we're at a good point right now. And I think we look around the country around the United States, at least, and we see these people who didn't do those things. And now this is, this is where we are. Um, How do you convince people? I mean, as someone who understands the public, as someone who understands infectious diseases, who studied this, how do you convince people to just do the things that you're saying? And uh, that's, you know, I think the biggest challenge to all this clearly, and I think what doesn't help is the fact that, you know, in, in most individuals, particularly the young, healthy who seem to be driving a lot of this recent resurgence, you know, this in most cases isn't an overly severe disease. And, and certainly when we look back, it, it might be similar in flu, which I spend most of my time thinking about. And to me, what resonates the most is people got to start thinking just in, in more general community terms. So we're not just doing these interventions to protect yourselves. We're doing them to protect, you know, grandma, grandpa at home or the, the, the elderly next door neighbor or you know, perhaps a co-worker has some underlying conditions. So that's, I think, the message that's really got to get pushed out there is that we've got to protect those people by act, 
activities that we do ourselves. Right. And Jason and I have talked about it. We've gotten a little comical about it, but, you know, we mean it seriously. I mean, it's so simple. Wear a mask. It's not just about protecting yourself. It's about protecting others and having that sense of community. And I do wonder, in some of the studies that you've done, um, you know, this whole idea that, you know, new pathogens, right, confront us every year. It's not to say that they'll all be like COVID-19, but nonetheless, we're going to be dealing with them more and more as humans and animals interact with each other or come into contact with one another. I mean, this is the environment we've got to get used to, no? It is. And we certainly, this is not the specific environment we have to get too accustomed to, but you're dead right. So there's a, you know, on a global scale, there's been a huge increased demand for protein over the past decade or more as sort of um, people's quality of life improves. And, and with that, you know, there's a lot more farming, intensive farming of animals. Uh, and that, you know, really drives a lot of this what we call zoonotic diseases, so these transmission of what would typically be an animal disease um, to spill over into humans. And so, you know, it doesn't look like there's going to be end in sight for that. So we're going to continue to see these viruses, bacteria, you know, name your favorite pathogen, mm. um, jumping over into humans from animals moving forward. So, Dr. Webby, talk to us about schools. We've been talking a ton about it, uh, Carol and I have, because we both have school-age kids. Uh, New York state saying they're going to cautiously reopen. Los Angeles, according to the New York Times, saying all remote learning. What's the right path forward for schools here? Yeah, that's a tough one, too. And it's I know it's something I've got young and teenage kids as well who are, their schools are grappling with the same issue. Um, it's it, it's tough. You know, I think, you know, there, there can be a, it can be an argument made that trying um, so, you know, just cautiously open and see what happens. Um, because it's dependent on what's going on in the community. It's going to be dependent on the individual schools. You know, can they actually maintain any degree of social distancing and still open? You know, some schools are clearly going to be in a better position to do that than others. So, you know, I, I think there's not really one answer that fits all in this case. And, you know, each school, each district, um, you know, potentially each state's going to have to look at what's going on right. in their environment. What, you know, what can they do successfully? So I do want to dig a little bit deeper, and I know Jason and I were kind of queuing this up, um, the connection or what we need to know about the relationship between COVID-19 and influenza. And that is something Dr. Richard Webby, infectious diseases expert at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, uh, has looked at, and he's on the phone in Memphis, Tennessee. So what do we need to understand about the correlation between these two? Yeah, so if you look at the uh, similarities between these, Carol, so these are both viruses that cause respiratory illness in people. They're both viruses that started their sort of life as animal viruses. Um, but it's kind of where the similarities end. So they are they're different organisms. Um, they unfortunately cause a lot of the similar symptoms up front, which could be a challenge as we go into a more sort of classical flu season. Um, but I think the big questions are yet to be answered in terms of, you know, what, what should we really expect if both of these viruses circulate at the same time? And, of course, you know, nowhere anywhere has had to deal with that yet. So wait, wait. So what are you worried about? Well, I think, the, uh, you know, the problem is, you know, what happens, what will be the consequence of someone being infected with both of these viruses at the same yeah. time? 
Um, and that could go in either direction. It could be a good thing, it could be a nothing thing, or it could be a bad thing. And so I think that's why there's a lot of people out there now really looking at this question, and, and particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, where certainly um, COVID is circulating and some countries have a bit of flu activity, really looking hard at that question, what happens if people happen to get both of these viruses at the same time. So what's your advice to people as we prepare for this, uh, Dr. Webby, get a flu shot? I mean, is it all the more important to get a flu shot this time around? Absolutely. And I think there's probably going to be messaging about getting the flu shot and getting it early. Um, luckily, with flu, we have a vaccine. It's you know clearly has room for improvement, you know, but it does work. And uh, you know, I think, as I said, these two viruses have similar symptoms overall. So it's going to be very difficult, you know, going into a flu season to tell, you know, do I have COVID? Do I have flu? You know, and clearly the treatment for one is different than the treatment for others, so it is important to know. And anything we can do to reduce the amount of flu circulating, um, i.e. get vaccinated, is going to be a good thing. Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, you know, get the normal flu, right, or get the flu, and does that make you more vulnerable and susceptible, I would guess, to COVID potentially? Or just, I mean, obviously put you in a weakened state, but I do wonder about, you know, those concerns. And that, that's a concern. It, it's actually quite interesting if you look at what happened in the U.S. when COVID came along. We were just starting to see an uptick, uptick in flu activity. You know, when COVID, COVID sorry, came along, that actually went away. You know, so it's even possible that these two viruses won't be able to coexist well together. Um, so I think we've got to, it's a usual story, we've got to sort of prepare for the worst, but, you know, hope for the best. Yeah, it is interesting to think about it. Carol and I have talked about this a million times related to us both getting sick, presumably with the flu. By all accounts, we both had the flu uh, earlier this right. year or some, some form of it, right? my wife as well, uh, and, and other members of our family. I do have to ask you, uh, Dr. Webby, uh, and your accent gives you away a, a little bit. You're familiar, because it is your homeland, with what New Zealand has done here, by all accounts, extremely successful in dealing with coronavirus. What do we learn? Only got about a minute left. Again, so I think what we've learned from the New Zealand situation is that you know, closing up the social distancing you know, can be incredibly successful. So New Zealand closed up tight. They closed up early, and you know, essentially they have no COVID and incidentally no flu either circulating in the community. And um, so they've got very tight controls of people coming in. So this can be managed, um, not easily, and it. It takes everybody sort of joining in to do it, but, you know, this virus can be controlled. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I just I have to keep right. uh, coming back to this. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but I, I laugh sort of in, in, in like a, a wincing way. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, this is controllable. We, right. can, we can figure this out. Look All at right. other nations that have successfully done I know, it. Right? I know. Look to the Kiwis. Right. All right. Dr. Richard Webby, thank you so much. Infectious diseases expert at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Joining us on the phone from Memphis. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, one of the voices that we trust, we love hearing about, I love talking to him about sports, and I know you do too, mm -hmm. uh, Carol, and especially the NCAA, which he's written a fantastic book about, uh, all about the inequities there. Joe Nocera, we're talking about, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us on the phone from Florida, along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from Massachusetts. Joel, tee this one up for us. 
So Joe has a uh, regular back page um, that I love, and whenever he does it, he looks for uh, something happening in the news, but mainly in the courts. And he always—it's sort of like I just kind of like get to open my email and learn about some little wonderful surprise. And on this one, lo and behold, you know, like we're all jonesing for sports. Um, you know, we might be lucky enough to see some NBA soon enough. Uh, but there's a particular court case that like just kind of feels like it never goes away, and it, it's been back actually in the headlines a little bit so far this year, and it seems like it will remain there. But, Joe, what am I talking about? We are talking about a class action lawsuit uh, called National Collegiate Athletic Association Athletic Grant and Aid Cap Antitrust Legislation Litigation. It's been going on since 2014. And, of course, its predecessor, the famous O'Bannon case, started in 2009. So, basically, they've been fighting over uh, getting benefits for uh, college athletes um, for over a decade now. And, and, uh, and, you know, the reason I wrote the column was because I just could not believe that the NCAA, having lost in the district court, having lost in the Court of Appeals, was actually going to take this to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court will, will not take it, of course, but that'll at least you know, drag it along for another year. What's really going on here is that um, the, the plaintiffs want the players to get more benefits, to get more money. The NCAA is basically against it, and they're fighting it at a two-front war. One war is with the government, the state governments, with the, with the name, image, and, and, and likeness stuff. And the other is in the courts, where uh, the, 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 the courts have basically concluded that athletes can get however much money, however much thing, as long as it's related to education. And so that's where we are. What's the NCAA so worried about, Joe? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they, say in the, they say in the latest uh, filing that play, if this goes through, players will get lavish benefits like cars, trips abroad, and highly paid internships at Nike. Now, think about that for a minute. How many students, non-athletes, have cars, take trips abroad as part of their education, and have highly paid internships at law firms or wherever, you know, except if you're an athlete, of course, then it's a, it's a crime against nature. So, well, so then I go again. What is the NCAA so worried about? And, and are they just worried about lo- losing control here or what? Um. You know, you know the old saying, um, uh, where you sit is where you stand? Mm. Um, the NCAA has been sitting on a gold mine for 100 years. And it's a real gold mine now with, with uh, coaches making $10, 11000000 million, with, with uh, you know, assistant coaches making $2 million, with incredible facilities, right. with this, that. You know, everybody's making money here. Everybody's making money. Why are they all making so much money? Because the labor force doesn't get anything. So the NCAA will argue, well, we need amateurism because um, the fans will turn against college athletics um, if we start paying the players. Now, I have a word that I use to describe that, but I can't say it on the radio. (laughs) Uh, Is it one word? Is it two words? No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) But really, you know, when you get right down to it, as we've noted before on this show, the NCAA is a cartel that is designed so that the, 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 the universities can have a labor force that makes no money. And that's so why wouldn't, why wouldn't the Supreme Court want to hear that case, Joe? 
Well, they turned down the O'Bannon case. Um, I think the reason they don't want to hear it is because there's not, there's not some other circuit, like the Second Circuit, that has a different uh, a difference of opinion. I mean, I think the NCAA just, I mean, the Supreme Court would basically view this as, you know, there's, there's nothing to decide here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been decided in the Second Circuit. We don't disagree with the, sec- with the Ninth Circuit. I'm sorry, the Ninth Circuit. So let's just let it, let's just let it go. So, Joe, how at risk is the economic argument, or how does the economic argument change, if at all, given the existential threat that we're seeing on college sports owing to the virus? That is a damn good question. Um, the virus is not going to ultimately cripple Ohio State, Michigan, Southern Cal, they may, have, they may have to cancel fall football, they may have spring football, they may even have to cancel spring football. But it's the medium-sized universities where football basically supports the rest of the athletic department, where they don't have high-powered television contracts, you know, University of Connecticut, um, University of Cincinnati, uh, Memphis, um, uh, all those kind of schools, they're going to get hammered. And as I've said before, it's not going to happen today, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but there is a possibility that down the line, the lack of money is going to force them to rethink how they approach college athletics. You're stunned in silence? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I, what, but what do you make of, like, just staying on the, the closing sports, Joe? I, you know, Stanford getting rid of 11, you know, Varsity sports, I mean, that's a huge well, deal. Well, yeah. First of all, Stanford had 36 teams. True. Which is uh, number one. Number two, the real the, the people, I mean, those athletes are going to be hurt and those coaches are going to hurt, no, no doubt about it. But what this really hurts is the Olympic movement. Yeah. Because the sports that are getting, getting canceled are all the Olympic sports. They're wrestling. They're swimming. They're, they're you know, it's, it's, it actually is tragic that this is happening. Because, you know, everybody has to preserve football. I mean, that's really what's going on here. Football is the most expensive. It also makes the most money for some schools. Um, uh, you know, if you're going to tighten your belt, you're going to tighten it on swimming. I mean, it, I, I, I think yeah. it's terrible, but there's not much that can be done about it. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Nocera, we always appreciate uh, catching up with you. Uh, good luck down there in Florida. We look forward to your next missive, as always. Uh, in this case, it's going to go on and on and on, I feel like. We're going to be fighting about this forever, Joel Weber. And I think we're lo- they're all gone. They're all we stunned them into silence. Carol Masser. <laughs> In any it's, case, Joe Nozera joining days. us from Florida. Joel Weber, the editor of it's, the magazine, joining us from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, amid all of this, amid these domestic problems that we are facing from a virus perspective, there is the whole matter of the U.S. and China. So we turn to Andy Brown, our in-house expert, our go-to guy on all of this. He is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He has a great column out today that talks about Chimerica, you know, China and America, and it not being the chimera I looked up how to pronounce that, uh, that maybe we thought it could be. Uh, so, Andy, help us understand what's going on. Yeah, so, so the, the historian Neil Ferguson co-authored this book in 2006, which he called Chimerica. 
And the idea behind this book was that the U.S. and Chinese economies back then were perfectly compatible, in fact, completely symmetrical, that the Chinese saved and the Americans spent, and the Chinese produced, um, you know, and the Americans consumed. Uh, and this was the central economic block in the global economy. Um, you know, and, and what I'm saying is that it, this really, and, and, and Neil Ferguson himself, of course, has, has, has endorses this, that this has turned out to be a, a chimera, as you say, that, in fact, you know, they established a huge uh, trading relationship, and China bought an awful lot of American debt. But beyond that, they failed to put in place a sufficiently broad and deep economic relationship capable now of holding the whole thing together, which is one reason why you're seeing so suddenly um, and savagely this entire relationship, the most important bilateral relationship in the world, literally disintegrating. And every day brings fresh news of that disintegration. We just heard one um, just a few seconds ago talking about the United States um, explicitly rejecting China's claims to the uh, territorial claims in the South China Sea, which has raised the heat yet again on that area of the world. So, okay, so bottom line, you can't have a decoupling if you didn't really have a coupling in the first place, right, Andy? Right. So what are the implications of this? This is where we are today in this relationship. So what does it mean for, I don't know, the future of the U.S., the future of China, and really kind of of the world, because these are the two powers and two countries that I feel like everybody, you know, looks to in many ways. Well, well, well for a start, we, we can't expect collaboration between the U.S. and China to help repower the global economy after COVID-19. Quite the opposite. Um, you know, the uh, COVID-19 has exacerbated all of the tensions that existed in the relationship and added more. The most, the most important, of course, being this um, uh, blame game uh, about the origins um, of yeah. the pandemic itself. Then we have these issues over Xinjiang. Now we have the national security law. And quite alarmingly, you know, this month we've had war games in the South China Sea where you had two aircraft carrier strike groups from the United States conducting round-the-clock exercises. And in, in another part of the South China Sea, you had China with these live-fire, you know, uh, drills going on around, around the Paracel Islands. Last week, you had the United States announcing sanctions against senior Chinese government officials, including a ranking member of the Chinese Politburo. Today, we have China, or was it yesterday, we had China imposing tit-for-tat sanctions on mm -hmm. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. You know, right. not that it makes much difference. They don't have, I, I can't imagine they have much investment in China. Nevertheless, highly symbolic. Right. And so, Andy, since you are uh, in charge of the Bloomberg New Economy platform, what does this mean uh, in terms of this global economy going forward? Do we have, and this is something we talked with you about before, does it come down to choosing sides? What, what happens going forward that we can measure? Well, you know, I'm afraid from, from the point of view of, of 
the economic relationship, um, I think things continue to fall apart. I mean, the senior Chinese officials are now pretty much saying that they expect a complete rupture in the relationship. You had Fang Xinghai, who's a very senior Chinese official, just the other day at a conference in Beijing, saying that essentially he's worried that China is going to have to operate outside of the U.S. dollar system and promote the use of, of the RMB, which isn't going to happen, but it tells you how badly the Chinese expect that things are going to turn out with the United States. The problem is this. There isn't a single issue in the world that can really be addressed without the U.S. and China talking right. together. So, yeah. you know, whether you're talking about climate change or terrorism or, you know, uh, um, uh, the virus, right? Crime or, the, or indeed the virus and vaccines, you know, so we have to figure out some way of holding it, of keep maintaining a dialogue while recognizing that other parts of the relationship really are going to have to be ring-fenced and, and some pragmatic right. workarounds established, but we have to keep the dialogue going, and that's really what the New Economy Forum is going to be about this year. It's trying to sort of have, be, act as a bridge to yeah. keep these necessary conversations going amid all the, 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 the other parts of the relationship that are going so terribly wrong. We are definitely living in interesting times with so many important issues that need to be dealt with uh, and on a global scale. You can't just do it on your own, uh, one individual country. Um, Andy, thank you so much. and looking forward to hearing more uh, of that work that you guys are doing at uh, New Economy, uh, Bloomberg New Economy. Editorial Director Andy Brown joining us uh, about his weekly column on the phone in New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, one of our pals, David Dietz, president and chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management. They're looking after about $6.5 billion. He joins us on the phone from lovely Summit, New Jersey. David, how are you? Doing well, Jason. Thank you so much. Well, nice to hear your voice. And, you know, we're looking at a market that, at least over the course of our humble television radio show here, um, is trying to find its way and and maybe wrestling with some headlines. How are you wrestling with the headlines and a market that seems to be, at least so far, holding its enthusiasm, even if it hasn't for the last half hour or so? Well, there's some tremendous cross currents going on. And of course, we're mindful that the markets have risen from that March 23rd bottom almost 50%. So there's no question about it. We're telling our clients some of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. But on the other hand, I think it really depends on what your time horizon is uh, because you still got many sectors of the market which are still down 15, 20, 25%. And we seem to be seeing 
some progress in terms of the number one issue confronting us, which is this COVID-19. On the one hand, the markets had a big reversal this afternoon as California announced closings, not just in the hard-hit areas, but statewide. The San Diego and Los Angeles school systems also are not going to open. But on the other hand, we heard some great news this morning from Pfizer and a German biotech. They're going to have their, uh, they're going to have hundreds of thousands of vaccines potentially available by the end of this year and maybe by the end of next year, uh, a billion different uh, versions of it available. Um, so we're each day getting closer to that all-important vaccine. Okay. So how do you as an investor kind of take that in, uh, David, and figure out, okay, we're kind of bottoming out with the bad news, especially when, you know, it's not so clear that we are bottoming out with the bad news. I mean, we talked with our Yelena Shalejeva of Bloomberg Economics. She's got some real concerns about the economic outlook, especially if we don't get continued relief programs for individuals. And that will ultimately impact what kind of economic recovery we have. And that ultimately will play out in the stock market. Well, so, I mean, job one, of course, the conservative way to play it is to be diversified. So you want to have one foot in those stay-at-home and secular tech growers and one foot in the recovery plays. You know, the case for the recovery plays, really, um, Carol, is, for example, there's an ETF that focuses on travel and leisure stocks. It's down 38% year-to-date. So I'm just thinking to myself, okay, people are now getting one hundredth of 1% in the Fidelity Money Market Fund. If just in the next five years you can recoup that 38%, if you have any kind of hope that there's some sort of normalcy, not just next year or right. even 2022, but in five years you're going to make that 38%. So that's the reason to kind of stay the course and not give up on stocks at this point. All right. So, David, you know we love talking names. Talk to me about Disney. We were watching closely the headlines over the weekend. Disney World reopening, albeit cautiously, albeit with masked uh, attendance at both, uh, you know, cast members when they could be masked and, uh, and also visitors. How do you feel about Disney right now? So we like Disney because at the end of the day, content is king. There's a lot of ways that we've, we get content, and that's um, shifting the distribution from, of course, traditional cable to streaming and so forth. But Disney has the con- content. They've augmented it by a deal last year to buy a lot of the Fox Entertainment. They have, of course, the best um, production capabilities. Um, and right now, of course, is well off of its highs due to the COVID fears that the theme parks are having a very challenging time to try and reopen here. And, of course, the release date for many of their vaunted movies is being pushed back because the theaters can't open. But we think that's temporary. Meanwhile, you've got Disney Plus, released last November, new streaming service. It could have 150 million subscribers by 2025, and we think it can reach profitability by 2021. Uh, We like their Star Wars franchise. We like their deal to carry the Amazon content. To get that Amazon content, you have to go through the Disney Plus. So we think it's well positioned. So here's the thing. The stock was 145 as late as February. If it gets back up there, that's a 25% gain. So even if it's two years to get back to where it's in February, as as the COVID it settles down, that's a nice gain for you. Yeah, and Disney definitely got a boost from uh, showing the musical Hamilton on July 3rd. I mean, I've watched it, uh, and I think they recorded a 10% jump in users 
um, last week. So it definitely has has been a big plus. So you like Disney. You also like, um, I'm just taking a look at some of the names. You also like Darden Restaurants. Is that the same kind of thesis that these restaurants are going to be coming back? Absolutely. Well, first, we do think casual dining will ultimately come back. People are dying to go out for a meal, not have to prepare it, have it served to them. Right now, there's a little bit of that outside, but ultimately, the colder weather will come. We're going to want to get back in there. So it's just a matter of time. The new normal will not not include restaurant eating. So Darden has some of the best names. You've got the Olive Gardens. You've got the Longhorn, a lot of specialty names. Um, So right now, uh, you know, the stock was at about 125 as recently as January. Now it's 75. So, you know, we think that if it gets back to normal, it's a 70% gain. If that's five years from now, that's worth hanging in there for. And Darden's a, Darden's a key name. I got to say, David, I feel like I've seen this movie before. It's not dissimilar, not the same crisis, but financial crisis. There were a lot of names that we, if you could put on your logical logic hat and say, okay, this business isn't going to go down completely, um, and you had the nerve, you could, you could certainly buy into something and just hold it and turn out uh, to be really good in the long term. So I feel like, Jason, something similar. What? Go ahead, David. You know, so we've had one of the Just best quickly. bull markets ever since 2008, but certainly here it's all about the healthcare developments. So you have to have confidence that the 100 firms around the world are ultimately going to be able to develop a vaccine. It gets distributed. That's going to be the game changer for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. All right, David Deeds, thank you so much. Good to catch up with you. President, Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.